It's Friday, the 30th of October, and you're watching Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution, as well as a Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism, and I'll be your moderator today. Now, if this is your first time watching Goodfellows, what you're going to see for the better part of the next hour is a conversation in which three Hoover Institution senior fellows, or Goodfellows as we jokingly refer to them, offer their unique insights into what may lie ahead in these complicated times. Now, let's meet the Goodfellows, beginning with John Cochran. John's an economist, and he is the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. John, how are you today? I'm doing great, thanks. Good to see you. Second good fellow joining us from his wilderness outpost is Neil Ferguson. Neil, of course, is a renowned historian and author, and he is the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Our third good fellow, last but certainly not least, is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. General McMaster is the Hoover Institution's Fawada Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow and is the author of the best-selling book, Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. Hello, H.R., how are you? Great, Bill. Good to be with you and, and John and Neil. Okay, well, let's cut to the Jason. Let's talk about the presidential election. Let me begin it this way, gentlemen. Four years ago, it was very fashionable to complain about the choices of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, both two very polarizing figures. Here we are four years later, and it's very fashionable for people to complain about Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Why? You look at the numbers in polls, Democrats are turning out to vote against Trump more so than to vote for Biden. There's an enthusiasm gap. As for Trump, yeah, there are Trump supporters, but also Trump voters who want to vote against Democrats. Have we advanced or regressed from 2016? Do you think this is a better choice or in some ways is this a worse choice than the last time we went through this exercise? Well, I'll, I'll chimp in a little bit. Um, it's, it seems like a worse choice than it, it was, you know, many, many years ago. George Schultz keeps saying this, that quality people don't go up for public service anymore. And I think that's uh, been true in our country and something we should face. Why is uh, Washington less and less something that, uh, that, that good people want to do for a little competent, you know, honest people want to do for part of their life and then go out. You have to do this for decades and, and be a professional politician or, or like Trump, be uh, something else entirely. Uh, the big question I think that leads to, though, is um, Joe Biden is uh, his campaign is I'm not Donald Trump. And that's about it. <laughs> and uh, as Trump, in many ways, was elected to not be Hillary Clinton. Uh, and that um, what do you do with a mandate that is just don't be Donald Trump. Uh, do you understand that's your mandate or do you go far, far beyond that and, and what happens afterwards? Okay, Neil HR. Seems to me that Joe Biden's more than just the non-Trump. He represents uh, an older era in politics. John, if you're feeling nostalgic uh, for the 1970s, uh, I've got Joe Biden for you because he's been there. in politics. Uh, for just about as long as George Schultz, not quite, but nearly. And, and that's part of his appeal, I think, that, that this represents an opportunity to go back to normalcy. A hundred years ago, that was the campaign slogan that won an election when Warren Harding, uh, the Republican candidate, said that he represented normalcy after all the upheavals of World War I and the great influenza pandemic of 1918-19, not to mention the Red Scare that there was in the United States at around the same time. And so I think the real appeal of Biden to voters, and, and it's clearly a greater appeal than Hillary Clinton ever had, uh, is that he is Mr. Normalcy. He is politics as it used to be before Donald Trump came along like a, 
a wrecking ball. So I, I think it is different. And the problem, of course, from Trump's point of view is that it's much less convincing to be a wrecking ball when you're the incumbent. Uh, what what you ha he had to offer four years ago was he was going to shake things up. Well, he's been shaking things up for four years. And one has a sense as we approach the final phase of this election that from many voters, exhaustion has set in and, uh, and Sleepy Joe doesn't sound quite so bad an idea, even though it was supposed to be a very devastating epithet. Let me, before HR jumps in, let me just push back a little. Um, the voters uh, four years ago were very tired of normalcy. And I think they said quite clearly that both parties, um, the way you've been running things, the Democrats since Biden's late 1960s have shown yourself to be incompetent out of touch with the deplorables. Uh, and and I, I don't think there's a great desire for going back to the normal state of what Democratic slash Republican stuff was in the 1990s, 2000s. I, I see just uh, don't be Donald Trump, don't be his Twitter account. And I think that, that this is what I think is gonna be the challenge coming ahead. The, the campaign has said nothing about its actual platform. And so Biden does not, if, if, as we said, just don't be Donald Trump, don't, don't be annoying on your Twitter account. That is not a mandate for sharply higher tax rates, Green New Deal, uh, redistribution, shareholder capitalism, to say nothing of rewriting the Constitution, getting rid of the filibuster, getting rid of the Electoral College, re-regulating everything right and left. So that's uh, I, the, the thing I see coming ahead is that the mandate from the voters is not even go back to normal, just don't be Donald Trump. Uh, but then the, the, uh, the desire internally will be for 100 days that make Franklin Roosevelt look very silent. And that's not what the mandate's going to be. Yeah, HR, what is the, what is the military class succeed where the political class fails? I've not heard anyone complain about, boy, the new chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, what an idiot that person is. Couldn't we find somebody better? Why does the military seem to have its act together better than our political leaders? Well, I, I don't think we want to take that for granted, obviously. I, I mean, I think that, and we don't want as the military to say, hey, look how great we are. Look how screwed up our civilian bosses are, right? That's that's a, a bad a trap that we want to avoid, I think. But I, I do think that there there are expectations of of selfless service in, in the military. And and I, obviously, I think the absence of partisanship, right, what, our, what our founders called factions, really helps the military do a better job of working together as a team. Uh, we're committed obviously to a higher purpose. We have an, an ethos uh, that, that revolves around the values of, of honor, selfless service and sacrifice. And so I, I do think that that ethos, <laughs> there's, there's a need for it, I think among some of our, our political elites who I think have fallen in, into the trap in recent years, especially of compromising principles for, for political uh, advantage and partisan advantage over one another. And, and I think this has been a factor, uh, the, the polarization of our elites, their willingness to engage in rhetoric that, you know, either blames Donald Trump for all of the deaths associated with uh, with, with COVID-19 uh, or, or blames the, you know, the other side uh, for, uh, for, for events and, and circumstances that, that have nothing to do with really the policies of that individual. So I, I think that makes us vulnerable to foreign interference as well. So I guess if I'm lamenting anything, <laughs> it's our inability really to to have a civil discussion uh, and to work together on issues that really should not be that divisive, but it seems now that everything is. And and if uh, you know, of course, I'd like to avoid discussions about domestic politics, Neil. So I hope you you and John carry this uh, carry this episode of Goodfellas. Mm -hmm. 
but I do, I do hope at some point, and to your original question of, of how do you assess the candidates, I hope that both parties produce candidates that really generate appeal for them and for their positions on policies across the partisan divide and reach what I still think is the vast majority of Americans who are in the middle. Your colleague Mo Fiorina has done some, some work on this, what he calls this a phenomenon of sorting where the electorate is, is sorting itself based on the shrinking size of what used to be the big tents of the political parties. And more and more Americans are defining themselves as independents in large measure because they are not satisfied with the partisan approach uh, to, to, to policy. So I, I hope that that's the case in the future. I think maybe it is. Maybe the swing that Neil, uh, that Neil out, <laughs> laid out of, of really Trump's base being uh, for really mainly people who are utterly dissatisfied with the establishment and President Biden's support really coming from those who want to return to, I mean, the 1970s or, 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 or normalcy. Maybe there's something in between that will produce leaders who have appeal across the partisan divide. So let me, I think you have a really good point here, which is normally what a party does when it loses is retrenches, rethinks, brings forward a new generation with a fresh ideas. The Democrats didn't do that uh, in the Trump era, but I think in, in loss, the Republicans may do that. The Tim Scotts, the Nikki Haley's uh, will redefine a new generation of, of people with fresh ideas, a new, a new coalition. There's interesting polling that um, young blacks and Hispanics are moving uh, much more Republican than, than uh, one had thought. So um, that's the standard way America does things. You regroup rather than just fight to delegitimize the opposition and, and try to find a better message this hope. But so I want to get to foreign policy and I want to ask HR a question. Thank goodness. Because uh, <laughs> I, I think I, I'm sorry, Bill, to take your job, but if, if I don't do a good job, you can ask the foreign <laughs> policy question. One thing every new administration does is quietly uh, admits that not everything the last administration did was terribly wrong. They don't admit it in public. They just don't instantly undo every single executive order. And so I, I find my, in, my, in my HR optimistic view, I'm trying to think of what things will the Biden administration just quietly let lie? Will they let uh, Betsy DeVos's cleaning up of the Title IX kangaroo courts just let lie rather than turn it all off? And foreign policy, the Trump administration had some successes, um, moving the embassy to Jerusalem, peace among the, uh, the uh, Israel and uh, Middle East states, the, the uh, uh, you know, will, will the Biden administration just jump right back into the Paris Accords, the Iran nuclear deal, uh, giving up the, the house to the North Koreans and in bed with the Chinese? I don't think so, but uh, I, I wanted to ask you a question and a foreign question. What do you think they'll keep and what do you think they'll throw away? Well, well John, I hope not. But I think sometimes, you know, new administrations, they can't help themselves in this, in this tendency that you point out of, of defining their foreign policy, mainly as in opposition to the foreign policy of the previous administration. And, and I hope that dynamic doesn't affect really two key areas. The first is, is on China. I, I think that, the, the, that uh, you know, these are smart people who would come into a, a Biden administration, but I, I think that they have to resist the temptation of listening to the Chinese Communist Party's false promises in two main areas. Hey, if you take the pressure off of us, you know, and, and we have this go back to cooperation and engagement, we'll work with you on North Korea. Okay, that's a lie. 
or that if if you if you take a more conciliatory accommodating approach to the Chinese Communist Party, we'll work with you on climate change and carbon emissions. That too is a lie. And so I think it's it's important. It would be important for the second Trump administration or a Biden administration to continue on with the, the policy and, and approach of competition with the Chinese Communist Party. The second area is Iran, and and I, I would say that that if if the Obama administration succeeded in one thing. It was empowering Iran across the greater Middle East, giving it better, more resources for it to continue its four decade long proxy war against the great Satan, the United States, the little Satan, Israel, the Arab monarchies and the West. And I think I think this is going to be very tempting to them because they portrayed the Iran nuclear deal as as a diplomatic triumph when, in fact, it was a political catastrophe. And so I, I worry about that. I think one of the reasons why uh, the Abraham Accords went forward, and, and this is not maybe the primary reason, and I don't mean to diminish in any way, credit that ought to go to those who worked so hard on it, really from the president's trip to Riyadh in 2017. But I think one of the reasons why the, the United Emirates and Bahrain in particular signed up is they recognize that their security interests align with the Israeli Defense Force vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Iran. And what they fear is a repeat of the Obama administration's stated policy of, quote, courageous withdrawal from the Middle East. And so this, there's hedging behavior going on in the region uh, in, in anticipation of a return to that policy. Uh, gentlemen, a question for you. It's been a very bitter election. It's a very divided country. Is it feasible to have a gracious winner in this election? But I'm also concerned about the possibility of having a gracious loser, because one thing if we know, whoever does not win this election, they're going to say they were robbed. They were gypped. A thumb was on the scale. Democrats will claim voter fraud. Uh, Republicans will claim media bias, social media bias. Is there any clean way out of this election? Only if there's a very decisive result, in my view. And, and even then, there'll be acrimony. I think there, 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 the interesting thing about this election is that if you think about the distribution of possible outcomes, the tails are really fast. I, I can attach quite high probability to a democratic sweep, to a landslide. I can well imagine that. Looking at the polling, uh, there is every indication uh, that, that, that Donald Trump is going to lose and, and the Republican Party is going to lose right down the ballot. Because after all, right now, Trump in the national polling is doing worse than John McCain at this stage in 2008. Uh, he's doing worse than George H.W. Bush was doing at this stage. So there's a very clear scenario in my mind, and I know our colleague David Brady uh, thinks this on the basis of his political science model, that this is just going to be a resounding democratic victory, a sweep. And at that point, it seems to me, there really isn't much that the losing side can do except uh, sour grapes, but it'll be an impotent sour grapes. There's also, in the other tale of the distribution, the 1948 scenario, when completely against the run of play, it turns out that the polls are way off and that Trump has somehow got across the line. There is definitely a way for Trump to get to 270 Electoral College uh, uh, votes if he hangs on to what some people call the significant six and that adds a couple more. And when I look at the polling in those key states, they're really being keenly contested. It's all within the margin of error. Uh, and so I can imagine a scenario in which Trump wins this. And I think if Trump actually gets to 270, um, at, swiftly, uh, it'll be equally difficult for the Democrats to, to do more 
than impotently complain. I worry that in that scenario, there will be violence in the streets of many American cities because there is such expectation of victory on the left that they are unlikely to take kindly to a 1948 shock. I don't suppose Thomas Dewey's supporters took to the streets and rioted. In fact, I know they didn't. Uh, but I can well imagine unrest if there's an unexpected Trump win because people are not psychologically ready for that on the left. But in the middle of the, this uh, distribution, uh, there, is, there is the nasty possibility of a contested election. And I think if Trump gets to 2.30 or thereabouts, uh, they're going to fight very, very hard. They're going to contest. They're going to challenge. They're going to demand recounts. There could be multiple states where this happens. It won't just be Florida like it was in 2000. And that, I think, is actually a very worrying scenario. Because I think if we have a contested election, it won't be like it was 20 years ago, which, when you think about it, was kind of gentlemanly in the end. Uh, this will be extremely uh, precarious uh, for the Republic. I don't think uh, I can predict what the outcome would be. My sense is that it might very well be that Trump wins at the end of the process that ends up going to the courts. But then again, imagine the bitterness that there'll be on the left if, if they feel that, that he's been re-elected, but that it's been stolen. They never really accepted the legitimacy of the 2000 result. So I do think there's a really dangerous period ahead of the country, uh, which, which I, I, hope we don't, I hope we don't go there, but it's a, it's a, it's a troubling thought to me. John, John, I know you've been thinking about this in particular to Trump losing the election and Trump supporters. And I think if we all watched the testimony last week with big tech on Capitol Hill, it's pretty clear that issue is not going to go away no matter what happens in this election. Yeah. So I want to emphasize what Neil said. I think the most likely thing is close and a month worth of uh, contested. Uh, Kim Stassel's uh, uh, op-ed in the Wall Street Journal today was quite good, just laying out the armies of lawyers that are already uh, fanning out across the country right. and ready to contest where needed to be contested. We know that so many uh, ballots were early voting and vote by mail that uh, we won't have results on election night. So we certainly will go through a period of weeks, even if it turns out to be a Biden landslide, there will be a week or two when uh, people are very inflamed and there isn't a clear answer. We're not used to that. We're used to it being done uh, overnight. So I, I think this, uh, as Neil also said, um, since the expectation is so strong from the Democrats that they're going to win, people who are disappointed uh, tend to, to run out into the streets more. So I think, and and what we've seen in the, uh, the riots already over the summer. Sorry, you're not supposed to call them riots. You're supposed to call them largely peaceful arson. Um, but uh, we've already seen that, that that mechanism there. So that's that's quite uh, dangerous in the end. And so let me get to your point. Um, you know, the, the point of an election is supposed to be to the point of the Constitution is to have legitimacy of the person who wins. And the uh, habit has been uh, for the losers uh, not to grant the legitimacy of the outcome to go home and sharpen their message, but instead to attack the legitimacy of the outcome. Um, and I'm, uh, I see already this, so this is the question I know I told you before, so I know you're teeing it up. Um, if you're good, just, we don't have to, you, you asked about, are we worried about the losing candidates giving in? But the question is their supporters and their party and everybody else who's with them giving in, whether or not these two individuals uh, uh, are, are gracious uh, at some point in their lives. Um, and uh, the, the story on the right is written already that the, um, 
the the media and the tech companies got together and quashed the story of Joe Biden's corruption and quashed whatever other stories and stole the election. I'm, I'm not endorsing that, especially the story of the election part, but you can see it written right now. And so if you want to feel that this a close outcome, one that was won by lawyers in a bunch of different states, which is probably going to happen one way or the other. And if you want to end all the votes, half the votes are in already. So if you want to feel that uh, the, the, the story of Joe Biden in China was quashed by the media and news companies and the election stolen, you're going to have, you know, I, I can forecast that's going to be Fox News for six months after the election is come, is won. And, uh, you know, you can't ask, they're not going to admit the legitimacy of the outcome. Right. Uh, so HR, Neil mentioned 1920, or actually he mentioned McKinley, but uh, I'm also interested in the 1920 parallel, and not just because it's 100 years ago, but also because Warren Harding wins that election. He's a Republican, not a Democrat, and he runs, as did McKinley, the front porch strategy. He doesn't campaign. He stays home in Marion, Ohio. Um, the Harding administration is not exactly the gold standard of presidencies, as we know, and he died in office. So there are a lot of roads here. Joe Biden does not want to go down. But one thing that does intrigue me about the 1920s and uh, tell me if you guys agree with this or want to shoot it down. Um, America's economy moved in the 1920s. The country went on a sort of a giddy champagne high of consumerism, recklessness in the stock market. And meanwhile, the world slowly became a very dangerous place with the rise of fascism. Uh, HR foreign policy has just been brutally shortchanged in this election. The third debate that should have been about foreign policy was not. It's was domestic. So you look at the world, and Neil and John, I want your thoughts here too. You look at the world, what should these guys have been talking about that clearly they have not in this election? You you mentioned Iran, you mentioned China, but what else is out there that is you know potentially dangerous? Well, you know, there, there is North Korea, and and uh, and really we don't know exactly what's going on in North Korea right now. We the, the country has been, you know, <laughs> reporting no COVID cases. Okay, that's implausible. Uh, there have been floods. Uh, it, there was it, there there's uh, there are food shortages. There's binge buying in Pyongyang. Uh, the the latest parade was done at night. Kim Jong Un has disappeared for three week periods multiple times. Uh, and and uh, and and I think it, it, there is a high degree of instability potentially in in North Korea. Uh, and of course that threat hasn't gone away in term in connection with the nuclear program and the missile program. The other thing that we're not talking about at all at all is the threat from jihadist terrorist organizations and how the Trump administration's policy of prioritizing withdrawal from Afghanistan is creating vulnerabilities for us and is already generating a humanitarian catastrophe of colossal scale in Afghanistan itself. That's going to be something worth watching in just the coming weeks. And it's going to be, I think, uh, an embarrassment uh, for, for the United States, the, the way it develops. Uh, the, you know, the Taliban who are sitting across the table from Afghan government officials in Doha are telling those Afghan officials, hey, wh why are we talking to you? You know, we, we defeated the greatest superpower on earth. We're going to reestablish the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. And it is a complete self-delusion, uh, Bill, that, that there's this bold line, you know, between the Taliban and these jihadist terrorists who want to, who want to kill our children. And I think, and sadly, we haven't realized that one of the reasons why there hasn't been another 9-11 is that our forces have been engaged, not bearing the brunt of the fight themselves anymore, but enabling others to bear the brunt of, of the fight. And I'm afraid we're going to go back to an approach to counterterrorism that is, is reminiscent of the Bill Clinton administration's approach, which was, remember, after the first World Trade bombing 
and Al-Qaeda. Uh, this is the, the, the truck bombs in 1994. Then after the declaration of war uh, from uh, Al-Qaeda on us that we didn't really pay attention to, then the embassy bombings and, and the attacks on one of our, our naval vessels in, in the Persian Gulf, what did President Clinton do? He fired a few cruise missiles and called it a day, right? Well, that was in 1998. That approach doesn't work. And so I'm concerned that nobody's talking about this threat, even as we see ISIS-inspired and maybe organized attacks as well in Paris uh, and then in Nice uh, most recently. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to realize that these, you know, these alumni of the recent wars, Al-Qaeda and ISIS, are orders of magnitude larger than the Mujahideen alumni of the resistance to Soviet occupation who committed the 9-11 attacks. They're more capable. Many of them have gone back to Europe after our successful operations to deny ISIS control of territory the size of Britain. And guess what? I mean, we don't require visas for travel from Europe. So I, I think there has not been any discussion that I've that I've uh, seen or heard uh, on on the problem problem associated with jihadist terrorist organizations. And that's been a big gap, I think. Well, I think, H.R., you're being too kind. There hasn't been much discussion of any policy in this presidential election. I mean, I'm sorry to tell you that how to deal with Islamic terrorism rates about on the policy agenda of this uh, presidential campaign with how do you treat mark-to-market requirements on der derivatives in the Dodd-Frank Act. Um, there hasn't been, so I'm an economist, there hasn't been any discussion of economic policy. Now, I don't know, the Trump, I don't know why Trump didn't just go to the debates and read the Democratic Party platform and say, do you really want to do all this stuff? There has been essentially no, there is a Biden plan involving shockingly high tax rates involving uh, the Green New Deal, in, involving re-regulation of industry, it goes on and on. There has been essentially, our, our Hoover colleagues, um, uh, Kevin Hassett with uh, Casey Mulling in Chicago just issued a very nice report. The only quanti serious quantitative evaluation of any of this stuff that I've seen from either side, but just uh, we're not talking about that economic policy program. Joe Biden emerges from his basement and sort of said, I'm gonna make the world get along together. And, and Trump comes out and says, whatever Trump is coming. And there's just been no serious discussion of these important policy issues. John, part of the problem has been a consequence of the pandemic, that there has been a bipartisan acceptance of the need for massive fiscal support for the economy uh, uh, during the pandemic. Uh, and there has been more or less uh, a similar consensus that monetary policy should be as accommodating as possible of this uh, level of, of government borrowing. And so economics has gone away because now everybody is a Keynesian. And the only question is, how big a Keynesian can you be? The Biden plan is very clear. They're going to spend somewhere up to $4 trillion on a variety of different programs, which when you read it closely... Uh, only a part of which really can be seen as support uh, for the economy during the pandemic. Most of this stuff won't actually happen for some time. Uh, and it's the usual uh, list of, uh, of things that Democrats like to throw money at. There'll probably be some attempt to reform healthcare. They always try that and they always fail, or at least they come up with something that's so, so unpopular that they would have been better not to try. Uh, there'll be the usual discussions of, of infrastructure, which I suspect will go uh, nowhere. But the, in the end, the public finances of the United States start off in a mess, and they're going to get in an even bigger mess the way this is 
this is going because you're right, the taxes are going to go up, but they're not going to go up anything like as much as the spending goes up. So one reason, John, maybe I'm wrong about this, but one reason there isn't really a debate on economic policy is that, you know, your side, Chicago, has been completely routed by the saltwater economists uh, who are disciples of John Maynard Keynes. You guys lost this. Yeah, the, the, the Republicans like to spend a lot of money too. I would emphasize, you know, if our if our country was just down to wisely spent money raised by an efficient tax system and a little bit too much of the former relative to the latter, I think we'd be in fine shape. Uh, the core of the economic policies that I think are really destructive is the level of, of uh, microeconomic management. Just let me bring up two. Uh, Joe Biden has said it's going to get rid of school choice. You can't ask for you know a worse thing to do to inner city black kids than to say we're getting rid of school choice. We're in for the teachers' unions, not for the kids. Uh, unionization. They want to. Uh, it, it all takes one act of Congress to get rid of the right to work uh, uh, question and and basically force unionization. Uh, what what we're discussing in California? Are you allowed to be an independent contractor or do you have to be an employee with with all those things? I, we could go on and on and on uh, that the whole shareholder capitalism, regulation of the internet, regulation of speech on the internet, the level of subsidies, uh, <clears throat> not just the money involved, but the, the waste involved in the Green New Deal kind of stuff. Uh, that is in some sense even worse than just spending too much money uh, <laughs> relative to your tax system. All right. So one way we have a policy discussion is you pick people for your cabinet. This is an Biden administration, and then you have hearings. The cabinet secretary designate has to lay out their policies. I would uh, dare to predict if Biden is elected president, you will soon be sick of the phrase team of rivals from Lincoln. Uh, it's one part Lincoln. It's really one part also Corleone from The Godfather. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer, if you will. So you're already seeing stories that Bernie Sanders wants to be the labor secretary. Elizabeth Warren wants to be the treasury secretary and so forth. HR, I'd like to start with you here. Would it make sense for Joe Biden to reach across the aisle and try to find someone like Mitt Romney and install Mitt in the Pentagon or the State Department? Yeah, it would make complete sense to do that. But I think he's under tremendous pressure to not do that. Uh, I do hope that you know, that, that we do move toward more of a bipartisan approach to foreign policy in particular, right? I mean, who's for, you know, Kim Jong-un with a nuclear weapon? I don't think it should make a difference if you're a Democrat or, or a Republican. So that is an area where I think we could begin to help bring the country together is around issues of, of foreign policy. It will be interesting to see who uh, a Biden administration points to these positions. Uh, I think the lead candidate for defense is Michelle Flournoy, who I think ha has very well-informed um, views on, on foreign policy it would be a strong voice, I think, for a competitive approach to, fo to foreign policy that in many ways demonstrates some, some continuity uh, with the big shifts in, in that the Trump administration put in place in connection with China for, in, in particular. But I, you know, I, beyond that, I think it's a, it's a, a guessing game. Uh, and and uh, I do think that there is a lot of pressure on the Biden administration not to build a team of rivals, but instead to double down on, on rewarding uh, loyal party members uh, who who helped uh, helped him win the election if he does win the election uh, on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. John, what do you think? I think there's going to be a team of a team of rivals, but the, the rivals is not a question of Republicans. You know exactly what's going on. The question is, it's like the leaders of the New York Times versus the millennial staff. It's the Woodstock generation versus the woke millennials uh, and, and the rest of it. It's exactly, is it Elizabeth Warren for Treasury, Bernie Sanders for Labor and AOC for the new Department of Green New Deal? The Department of Justice, by the way, this is in the Biden plan, 
there's going to be a new part of new depart new section of environmental justice in the Department of Justice. So watch out if you drive a, a car a car that burns gasoline uh, soon. Uh, this is you know it, it, in some sense if, if you're not a fan of this stuff, sit back and watch the show. So long as the Senate uh, doesn't go Democratic, or sit back and watch the show in any case. But that is. I think going to be the great, uh, that's the team of rivals. How many old guard versus uh, young radicals or old radicals, Bernie and, and, uh, and Warren are not that young either. Um, so that, that is the is big the, question. And, and the, let me, me just, the, 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 back to the original question, the, the Biden, those, there is no ideas there. It hasn't really changed since about the end of Watergate. Mm -hmm. So how are they going to fight back this the the woke invasion uh, from the left. So, go ahead, Neil. Go ahead, Neil. So I was going to say, John, that the the key for me is not so much the the personalities; uh, it's the structure of power that matters at the beginning of any presidency. Mm -hmm. uh, Joe Biden, uh, whatever his uh, state of of health, uh, he, he, he's he's no spring chicken. Uh, is Joe Biden going to be able uh, to play the part that the president must play uh, as monarch-like uh, figure at the head of the executive branch? If the president is weak, uh, then you have the classic politics of, of a court in and around the White House. And what we know from the first hundred days of all the presidents of, uh, of modern times is that there is a ferocious battle for access in the, uh, in the initial phase. And it will be very interesting to see uh, if indeed uh, Joe Biden is elected president, just how much power Kamala Harris as vice president will be able to wield. Because everybody will know that there is a non-trivial chance that she will become president at some point in the four-year period. Uh, and that means that the politics of this particular presidency will be a little different, I think, from the politics of past presidencies, because there is an air an air in the building, or at least next door. And I think that's going to shape uh, the politics in ways that won't necessarily be ideological. Kamala Harris is not ideological uh, in the sense that she is above all, I think, uh, an ambitious and uh, a careerist who, who has succeeded despite failing at the primary stage and getting very close to the top. So I think there'll be two centers of power. That would be my prediction. Uh, there will be the old... Uh, fading uh, monarch, and there will be the designated heir. And that's going to make for some very interesting court politics. Uh, but you're right, the, the classic problem that the Democrats have had, think back to Bill Clinton's first term, is that there are all these people filled with quite radical ideas, energized by victory in the campaign, uh, who ultimately have a battle on their hands uh, with those people who talk to Wall Street, uh, worry about the economy, don't want to tank the economy. And, and it'll be very interesting to see if, if it repeats uh, the history we've seen in the past that the moderates ultimately prevail, or whether this time the energy on the left is just too great to be resisted. And I rather think that it might be the, the latter case, that this will be a, a democratic administration that can't rein in the radical elements. Uh, and that, I think, will be its undoing, because the more radical they are in the first two years. Remember, this is America. We'll have another election to talk about before you know it. The more radical they are, uh, the more they don't focus on getting the economy back on track and get distracted by packing the court or turning Puerto Rico and DC into states, the more they're going to lose in the midterms. 
And then we should talk a little bit about how the Republicans can get themselves into shape uh, to win those midterms if indeed they lose this presidential election. That, those are the questions that interest me because I'm not sure how easy it's going to be to be a post-Trump Republican party. I'd love to get uh, my colleagues' thoughts on this. If Trump loses, and I want to reiterate, he may not. The polls could be wrong. It could be 1948. But if he loses, uh, goes without much grace, and I think we can be fairly confident of that, does he simply cease to be a variable in Republican Party politics? Or is he going to maintain an influence over the direction the party takes? If he does, how easy will it be for someone like Nikki Haley to reshape the direction of the party and make it more attractive to younger voters and, and non-white voters? So let, let me just, <clears throat> there's a bunch of wisdom here. Uh, number one, what really matters in a president is the appointments. The number one thing the president does is give people jobs. So who's around him or her is important. Second thing you guys have said, which I think we need to highlight, Joe Biden comes into this with no ideas. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton came in, I'm gonna be the triangulator, the woofer. Obama came in with some ideas, bless his heart. But Joe Biden has kind of gone with the wind for 47 years. How is he to resist this onslaught of ideas? And, but it is also true that in an American presidency, the president matters. Uh, I've been reading Casey Mulligan's book about his time in the White House, which is, one of many that makes this point, you know, there's the interagency dispute and, and defense is fighting with state is fighting with the CEA. And in the end, the president makes the decision. What happens when that president is weak and tired and, and out of work? Now, Kamala Harris is kind of an outsider. Joe Biden does come into this with a thick Rolodex and uh, Kamala Harris does not. So it'll be Interesting to see if she inherits the power or who's the, I, I agree that the, uh, the palace politics of this will be quite interesting. I certainly expected the palace politics of the, of the Trump administration to kind of calm down. There'd be sort of craziness in year one and then the professionals would gradually get the upper hand. And that never happened. I was totally fired. wrong about that. It stayed crazy all the way through. I don't know what you're talking about, Neil. Hey, no, the, the uh, what, 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 I, what I'd like to say is, just to build on Neil's observation about court politics, I think there are three fundamental types of people who serve in any administration. There are those who come in who say, okay, my role is to help the elected president execute his or her agenda. And to do that, I'm going to give the elected president multiple options, let that president decide what his or her agenda is, and as assist with the implementation of, of those decisions and policies. Those are you know, large, largely long-term civil servants and those who understand what their, what their role should be within an administration. The second group of people are those who come into administration, who are activists, who are there not to present the elected president with multiple options, but to manipulate decisions consistent with their agenda. And I think the second group is going to be quite large, potentially, uh, in an Biden administration. And the third group are those who define themselves in the role of saving the country and maybe the world from the president. This is, you know, the so-called, uh, you know, anonymous writer and, and so forth who's recently been revealed. So I, I think all three of those groups are, are, are it's important to, uh, to distinguish between them because what distinguishes them is their base motivation for being in the White House or in the departments and agencies as political appointees. I think to John's point about how does it run? You know, how is the process going to run? There are three main councils uh, that will have a big impact on policy initially. The National Economic Council, uh, the Domestic Policy Council, and the National Security Council. Not only who runs them, but how they run them is important. 
do they get involved in advocating for some of these uh, these projects you know, that that are going to divert us from from the most important uh, most important priorities? And and also the question is, are they tactical or strategic? Are, are they are they trying to, to to centralize control and make decisions about everything and to centralize authorities that actually ought to be in the departments and agencies, or are they facilitating coordination and integration across the government? to frame the challenges that we're encountering and to craft sensible strategies that, that build a better future for, for all Americans. You know, I, I think uh, over the years, uh, when, when I came into the job as National Security Advisor, I found that that National Security Council had become very tactical, had centralized authorities, were not, was not really thinking longer term and, and framing the challenges that we're facing. And so I, I hope that, that that doesn't happen again. Uh, and, and I hope that whoever comes in, whether it's a Trump administration or, or, or a Biden administration, that they pay attention to two things. The base motivation of the people they appoint. And the second uh, is, is the, how they establish the processes around the, these, these three critical organizations based in the White House. Right. Now, gentlemen, one more thing we know about the Trump coalition, it's an interesting coalition. Let's say he gets 65 million votes uh, after Tuesday. Uh, we'll know that a portion of that was just purely anti-democratic. They see Nancy Pelosi, they see AOC, and they just have to vote uh, for Trump. Some of that's what I'd call Faustian Republican. They may not like Trump's personality, his demeanor, but they sure like the economic policy. They love the judges. But there's a good portion of that that is what uh, John referred to earlier. They are anti-establishment. Uh, Neil, I'd like you to lead with this. Let's talk a bit about the future of Trump brand populism and where it goes. And maybe is there a historical parallel to look to? I'm curious as to kind of the legs that populism has. Does populism have to have a figurehead like a Trump or a Huey Long or a Ross Perot ahead of it? Or can populism just continue and just pick up new characters to lead it? Well, I don't think that the appeal of Trumpism is going to go away because apart from anything else, the Democrats have really learned nothing from the last four years and they're going to carry on pretty much uh, as they did before. Uh, and they will therefore continue to infuriate the kind of people who voted for Donald Trump uh, four years ago, who are going to feel alienated from uh, the Democratic elites uh, politics, from the culture war that they've been waging since they took over uh, the campuses and from the globalist uh, policies, I'll use the terminology of populism here, if John will forgive me, uh, that have done so little for the median household in the United States over the last 20 years. I don't think Trumpism goes away. And in, in many ways, I think what's been most striking about the Trump presidency has been the consistency of their approval of him mm -hmm. through thick and thin. I mean, it hasn't really varied much. The president's support has a very solid floor. So I think those people may find themselves uh, in the market uh, for new leadership uh, because Trump clearly won't be able to make a political comeback. There are no second acts in American politics. So the question in my mind is going to be who amongst the current crop of, uh, of Republican hopefuls can get those people on board and channel the fury and passion that they still feel because their level of enthusiasm has not waned uh, into a cause that isn't a personality cult around Donald Trump. Now, I watch with great interest uh, the way that Tucker Carlson addresses this audience uh, on his Fox News uh, show, which also has a terrific following on YouTube. I think he's become the most articulate voice 
of American populism. And he's been highly effective this year, taking some contrarian positions that were far from fashionable, particularly on Black Lives Matter, uh, but on a whole range of, of other issues. He's the only major anchor who really ran with the Hunter Biden story, uh, defying uh, the quasi-censorship that we've seen on social media. I think Tucker Carlson has real potential if he so chooses, because that audience will, will follow him and he knows how to address it. I don't see that amongst any of the established uh, politicians, because all of them failed to get that audience uh, four years ago. That's why Trump won the nomination. Right. And when I look at Nikki Haley, or even Tom Cotton, who I think has a kind of sense of what they want to hear, I don't see in them people who can really mobilize uh, Trump's base. Uh, the history of the Republican Party is often the history of importing people into politics from other walks of life. Right. Think of Ronald Reagan. He did not start as a professional politician. Right. So I'm going to put some money on Tucker Carlson as a potential force because I can't see anybody else out there who can really speak to that audience and keep them engaged and energized. Uh, let me try on this one too. I, I'm, I'm a little more hopeful about the Republicans reforming themselves in part because look at history. Um, uh, you would have thought that Watergate was the end of the Republican Party. It only took them till 1980 come back again. You would have thought that, uh, that Reagan was the end of the Democratic Party. But by 1992, they found a new set of ideas and were ready to go again. Um, I view much of Trumpism as the, uh, you know, the particular ideas of one particular man that will come and go with him. He's not his ideas are not institutionalized. Um, but the, the larger um, role of history continues. I've, I've been reading George Will's book, which takes us back to Wilson, to Teddy Roosevelt and Wilson. And if you read some of that, it, it reads remarkably like today. We are in a 120 year old uh, discussion on the size and scope of the federal government. Uh, on whether it is there to lead us to basically the, the greater Soviet and <laughs> the, the, uh, to, to the, the collectivist progressivist vision versus individual rights and individual freedoms. And those ideas, um, constitutionalism, individualism, our freedom to do what we want as the way to generate the greatest prosperity for the greatest numbers, those ideas are under threat, but they are something that's fairly eternal. And I think that's in the end what Trump's voters want. They don't want to be told they're deplorable and racist and told how to do things. They want to be sort of left alone. Uh, so um, find that voice in the inevitable. We know what's coming in the next four years. It's just a question of more or less. Most of America doesn't buy um, what's in the Democratic Party platform. I agree with Neil. There's likely to be a massive overreach and then an interesting election in two years. So it's just down to who can come and give that voice. Can the existing politicians, the Nikki Haley, the, uh, the Tim Scott, give uh, come up with those ideas and give them vibrancy and voice? Do we bring in uh, do, do, does the Republican Party turn to a Tucker Carlson, someone else who can do it? Um, but it's happened before, and I think that's what's going to happen again. And you can see I'm kind of voting my book. I'm hoping that where it turns is to the ideas of, of freedom and, and constitutional order. Uh, but uh, that's the obvious place to go. And I think, you know, I, I would just put in a plug at this point for the Hoover Institution, because I, I just hope that the Republican Party, if they go somewhere, they come to the Hoover Institution instead of Tucker Carlson, for example. <laughs> and and uh, and I do think that 
you know, our, you know, our, our, uh, you know, our purpose, you know, and, and, uh, and our slogan, I guess, of ideas defining a free society, what are the ideas that will define, uh, you know, a conservative approach to, to foreign policy and to economic policy in, in the future? And, and I, I think that we, there's a lot of work to be done on this. Uh, and I, I would just highlight again, you know, Neil and, and, uh, and John's points that I don't think, you know, Trump isn't, doesn't go away with Donald Trump because he didn't create it, right? He tapped into it. And I think this is one of the, you know, one of the many strengths of, of Victor's book, Victor Davis Hansen's book, the, you know, the case for Trump, which is, you know, the title is the case for Trump, but it's really, it, it's really a description of where did Donald Trump come from and, and, and who is the, what is the constituency who he rep, rep, represents? Another book that was written years before Donald Trump, but when you read it now, you can see Donald Trump coming in every page is, is the unwinding by George Packer. And, and this was a, you know, a great, uh, a description, uh, really, of of those people. Many he, he he does this really through certain characters that appear across the book's chapters that are organized around each year of the story. And he tells the story of those who were left behind in by transitions in the global economy in the 1990s and especially in, in the 2000s, and 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 those voters who felt disenfranchised, powerless, uh, you know, not represented by the by the political establishment. So I, I do think that those who think that, you know, partisanship and polarization and everything you know, goes away, it's not going to go away because, there, as you, we've talked about here, there's a big problem of, of a radical left uh, as well that has an agenda uh, that I think in many ways would be destructive uh, and, and set us back even, even further. So, you know, it's, it's going to be, you know, a difficult period. We talked about the 1920s. You know, how about the 1930s? <laughs> Maybe that's. Maybe that's what it is, or, or as Neil has said, uh, you know, maybe it, uh, we should go even further back for historical analogies. But so, I think obviously we all have to be engaged as Americans. I just like to say this one other thing as well from part of the earlier conversation. Mm-hmm. I think we should evaluate our political leaders based on the degree to which they are responsible, that they are responsible in not compromising our principles for scoring partisan political gains. And I think we'll have an opportunity, John, if you're right about the election and, the, you know, and the armies of lawyers and not having a definitive answer, you know, we, we ought to look at those who are a force for helping us restore faith in our institutions and in our constitutional process that will determine the outcome of this election and those who are given to demagoguery uh, and, and try to, to, to further diminish our confidence uh, in our democratic principles and institutions. All right, let's try to close this on a positive note since we've been offering a rather sort of jaundiced view of the American election here. Uh, and let's be positive in this regard. I believe that of the three of you, two of you are voting in your first presidential election, correct? That's HR correct. as a citizen, no that longer a soldier. Neil, you have been a citizen since 2018, so your first time to exercise your presidential That's franchise, correct? correct? Uh, John Cochran That's and I correct. have been voting since about 19, ooh, about 1980, and John's been voting in Chicago, so God knows how many times he's voted all said and done. Uh, but Neil and HR, why don't you perhaps um, give us something positive here, what it means to be participating for the first time in a democratic election, especially HR with you, since you've devoted a lot of your life to serving your country and allowing other people to enjoy what we take for granted. So the importance of voting is- Bill, we, we have democratic elections in the United Kingdom, so it's not my first time participating in a democratic election, but it is Good my point. first time participating in an American one. And uh, I was just reflecting on uh, the uh, the experience of, uh, of many British elections and uh, looking back on uh, on unexpected victories uh, in 1992, almost 
course, nobody expected John Major to win that election. And I placed bets with a number of my Oxford colleagues that the Conservatives would win a majority of 20. They came in on 22 and I won my bet. Uh, but I remember the amazement, uh, and it was amazement that we will see again if Donald Trump wins, because the polls were off by 9%. It was that big a surprise. But I also remember five years later, the disastrous defeat that the Conservatives suffered at the hands of Tony Blair. So I've been through a few elections, and that means that I'm ready for anything uh, come Tuesday night. I'm ready for an amazing and unexpected uh, Republican win, and I'm equally ready for a catastrophic democratic landslide. And that's, that's the benefit of, uh, of learning your democracy where it was invented. Uh, you, you can adapt fairly quickly to the, the later imitations when you come here. Okay, HR, you had to navigate the California ballot. Was it worth the wait? <laughs> you know, I, I just want to say, first of all, Bill, I, I think everybody should vote. The reason I didn't vote is to keep that really bold line between the military and partisan politics and, and probably maybe in an excessive way uh, and, to, and following the, the example of George Marshall. So I don't want anybody to think that I expect even my fellow soldiers not to vote. I think everybody should vote. And and I think it's a time to celebrate, right? So it's, you, you want, I mean, I'm the positive guy, right? So John, I think all of us should be positive that we do have a say in how we're governed. There are lots of places in the world where people don't have a say in, in how they're governed. But of course, the UK uh, obviously is a place where people do have a say in how they're governed as well. And then let's celebrate also- HRR ballots are a lot simpler. The California ballots, like an examination, we finally, Ayan and I were looking at the, the last question, which was so bewildering that we had to actually discuss what it meant before we knew uh, how to vote. I, I must say, if there's one thing that American democracy can do with, judging by a California ballot, it's some simplification. Well, I don't know. Isn't, isn't that some of the joy of it? I mean, you know, each of us is a tiny uh, drop in the in, in the bucket for the presidential election, but the, the Palo Alto school board, the bond issues, whether Uber shall continue in the state of California or be regulated out of existence, uh, these are uh, all important issues, and I'm delighted to have a chance to uh, to vote on them. <laughs> Judging by the way California currently run, this is not the way to do things. I, th I think the other cause for celebration is that people immigrate to our country and we get extraordinary citizens like Neil. So, you know, I, I think as we have this crisis of confidence, we're navigating the fact that Neil Ferguson is now a U.S. citizen is a cause for celebration in and of itself. And, and let's not add. Oh, I got, I got Thanks, <laughs> Okay, so I think we have our next episode of Goodfellas to come back and debate whether or not Neil Ferguson being an American citizen is a positive development. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you for a very lively conversation. I'm not sure we're going to do this episode again. I assume we'll do it once we know the winner of the election, which means we can do this very soon. Could be doing it a yeah. month, who knows? But I don't think Tuesday will be a dull night, will it? And watch the Senate. I know we didn't talk about the Senate a lot. We didn't get to, but you know what? We'll have plenty of talk after the election. Well, that's something to fun to watch. <laughs> okay. So that's going to be a wrap for this episode of Goodfellows. We'll be back soon with a new episode, a new conversation. Who knows? Maybe a new president. On the behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, we wish you and yours the very best. Stay safe, stay healthy, get out and vote. We'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you soon. <laughs>